I was a kid growing up in Jersey. Uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. together in the park as the evening sky grew dark she looked at him and he felt a spark tingle to his bones Twas that he'd felt alone and wished that he'd gone straight and watched out for a simple twist of fate this is pod dylan the show that celebrates the work of bob dylan one song at a time proud member of the fire and water podcast network i'm your host of freewheel and rob kelly and joining us this week to talk about simple twist of fate from 1975's classic blood on the tracks is music journalist Stephanie Hernandez. Hi, Stephanie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, for those of you out there that follow the show, been listening to the show for, oh my God, five years now I've been doing Bob Dylan, uh, you may notice that uh, didn't I already cover this song? And uh, yes, I did. Way back in the early days of Pod Dylan, I already did this song with a different guest. And uh, I'm not going to get too far into the details, but there are When I go back to some of my older episodes, uh, there are some episodes I wish I, or some songs that I wish uh, I could have redone, maybe done a better job with them. I mean, I said, I've been doing the show for five years. I I like to think the show is better now than it was back then. And there's always been just a couple that I sort of wish I could have a second bite at the apple uh, on. And uh, Simple Twist of Fate was at the top of the list. And I never really got the chance. No one ever really asked to do it because they figured I'd already covered it. But then I saw on Twitter a little while ago that Stephanie had asked about doing some research on this song. And I thought, well, that, that lines up perfectly. You almost say it was fate that uh, you asked about doing the song. I thought it was the perfect opportunity to redo the song. I mean, Bob Dylan redoes his songs all the time. So if it's good enough for Bob, it's good enough for, for Pod Dylan. So here we are together. We're going to talk about simple twist of fate from, from Blood on the Tracks. But before we get to all that, I mean, Stephanie, I want to ask you, like, how did you become a fan of the of Bob's work? Um, I think a lot of my music taste stems from me listening to the Beatles. Um, around the age of nine, so around 14 years ago now, I got really into the Beatles and really just wanted to read everything about them. And over the years, one character that kept popping up over and over again was Bob Dylan. <laughs> I was like, all right, I got to listen to this guy. And um, <laughs> the first album I decided to download was Highway 61 Revisited just because the cover looked cool. And Good, um, good start, good start. <laughs> from the initial opening rim shot of like a rolling stone i was completely hooked um the the organ and everything it was so different from anything i've ever heard before you know like was it rock was it rap was it folk um i was very confused but very excited at the same time <laughs> <laughs> and uh the closing track to that album as well desolation row became very important to me um i was always an avid reader as a kid and at that age, I didn't really have friends who I could talk about Thoreau or T.S. Eliot with. So whenever I heard him singing about Shakespeare and Ezra Pound, I was like, oh, I've made a new friend that I can talk about this stuff with. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that's how I got into Bob Dylan. <laughs> it is amazing how many people, when I've asked them how they became Dylan fans, was the Beatles, was their mm-hmm. introduction to him. And the Beatles <laughs> loom so large in the culture. I mean, pretty much the largest cultural figures of the 20th century, I would argue. Maybe Elvis, uh, but I would probably still, in terms of continuing influence, the Beatles, and it's their circle of influence is so wide that 
I love that you refer to Bob Dylan as a character in the, in the Beatles story. Cause it's like, yeah, I mean, when you, when you sort of tell the story of the Beatles, yeah, Bob Dylan starts entering in and becomes a big figure within their circles. And then of course you go follow him and then you're off in your, you know, a whole separate universe of now it's we're in the Bob Dylan. So that's it. The Beatles really, thank you, John, Paul, George, and Ringo for introducing so many people to, to Bob Dylan. That's just amazing. So what was it? I uh, said so you liked Highway 61. Um, where did you go after that? I'm, I'm dying to know, like, what albums do you follow up with after you start with that one? I think I jumped all the way to Time Out of Mind. Um, so it was a very big jump, different sounds, but I still liked it. And then, of course, uh, doing more research about him, I was like, okay, got to listen to Blonde on Blonde and Blood on the Tracks. And so that's where I went. And, uh, yeah. Those have got to be my, my favorite Bob Dylan albums, I think. <laughs> okay. So you talk about now you are a music journalist. Like what, do you have a particular area that you focus on? Or is there a particular, like what is, what's that world like? I'm not really familiar with the world of music journalism other than talking to a few of you that have done it. Like what are, is there some area of music or you talk about all sorts of things? I mean, where, where are you on that? Yeah. Um, I'm actually a PhD student also. So um my my PhD project is on English literature and music of the 1960s and 70s. So I like uh, my articles to also be about the 1960s and 70s. So I, I, tip, I tend to stick around those decades. I see. Okay. So I mean, what have you written about Bob extensively or, or at all at this point? No. Um, in, in various uh, undergraduate papers for my American literature class, I wrote an essay about him. Um, but other than that, no, this was um, the article that I wrote that included Simple Twist of Fate was the first one that I wrote about Bob Dylan for like a public audience. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. I, I hate to put you on the spot here, but I mean, when you wrote on Twitter that you were looking to do research on Simple Twist of Fate, uh, someone else out there, a very kind person, pointed out my episode uh, to you to listen to. And I will admit, a part of me... I kind of cringed a little because I wasn't, I wasn't the biggest fan of that episode. And I was like, Oh no, if that's the episode that she's being introduced to the show about, I don't know, maybe that's not the best introduction. And I wrote you privately to say it gets the show got better. So I hope you know, I mean, was, can I, again, I hate to put you on the spot. Was that episode at all helpful to you and your research on this piece? Yeah. It, it's always nice to get different perspectives about the song. Um, there were definitely things that I uh, disagreed with, but there was lots of <laughs> things that also, they, they opened my, my mind to different areas as well. So was, right, I liked it. It was good. All right, good. All right. We'll get into what you disagreed about. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> dying to find out what, what that might be. So, but one last thing before we get off of Bob, have you, you've seen him live, right? I have. Yes. Um, July, 2019, my brother and I saw him at the British summertime festival in Hyde park. So Neil Young opened Wow, Bob Dylan. Um, yeah, it was really great. Um, I tend to prefer the studio versions mm -hmm. uh, a bit more than his live versions, <laughs> purely because um, I think his voice now sounds a bit like Scooby-Doo, so it makes me chuckle a little bit. But um, yeah, there's something really magical about seeing him live. Um, it's a bit like seeing Santa Claus. He's such an enigmatic figure that he's almost <laughs> there. And then there he is, cowboy hats and a wide-brimmed hat and looks great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, all those shows he was doing in 2019 were, were really uniformly great. I mean, did you get that same sort of, you mentioned calling him Santa Claus. That's fantastic. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you get that same sort of kinetic feeling like I did. I've mentioned on other episodes where it's like the first time or maybe the second time I saw Bob live, like I, I had to get over the idea and I'm still not really over it, even though I've seen him 25 times. <laughs> that's the guy. 
That's the guy right there. He's not this figure on a screen or a voice and on a record. That is the guy, the guy that's done all those things. I, have you ever seen any of the, have you, do you ever have a chance to see any of the Beatles live? Um, I have seen Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr live. And yes, that, that feeling still looms every time I think about it. Like, I can't believe I saw these people who did all these amazing things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, at, at one point in the grand story of Paul McCartney and the grand story of you, those lines intersect at some brief moment. You guys were in the same room at the same time. <laughs> You yeah. know, and that's what I always think about. I, th- there was one one time I stayed in the same hotel that I knew Dylan was staying in. I oh, didn't wow. do it for that purpose. I wasn't stalking <laughs> him, everybody. But I happened to learn that him and the band were staying in the same hotel I was staying in. And I just was like, I, am I using the same ice machine as Bob? Dylan? <laughs> you know, this is that kind of like weird, nerdy yeah. thing. So, well, that's <laughs> great. That's great that you had a chance to to see him live, at least before everything went all pear-shaped and we all went into, yeah. into lockdown. Mm-hmm. So. All right, so let's talk about Simple Twist of Fate. I mean, so you mentioned you got some blood on the tracks. What was your, what is your opinion of the album as a whole? I know that's a big question to ask, but for me, it's my favorite. It's my single favorite. As much as it's hard to pick out anything as saying the best, this is the one I come back to the most. And what is your opinion overall of, of the album? Yeah, it's it's such a beautiful album. And the the article that I wrote that I wanted to do research uh, of the song about um, my assignment was to make a list of the 10 essential breakup albums. Mm. So of course I went autobiographical myself and thought about the various breakups and fights that I've had and the albums <laughs> that got me through them. And, you know, the albums that immediately sprung to mind were the Eagles, one of these nights, Dolly Parton's Jolene, Joni Mitchell's blue rumors by Fleetwood Mac. And of course, Bob Dylan's blood on the tracks. It's, it's one of those that like is super sad, but it, it's also got like a hint of optimism in the mm-hmm. music. But the lyrics, of course, are very uh, aggressive at certain points. <laughs> that's, a, that's one way to put it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've we've covered uh, most of the songs off of Blood on the Tracks at this point. There's still a couple left to do. But one of the things I reason one of the reasons I think this album does hold up so I mean, aside from the songwriting is just peerless. The musicianship is peerless, but it is that it does provide through these 10 songs a lot of different views of this particular uh, moment in this person's life. And if it was all just, you know, 10 idiot wins, as, <laughs> as, as amazing as that would be to hear, it would get tiring, I would think. Yes. You, would get, you would get worn out on just, okay, this guy is just super angry. I get it. Um, but the fact that it does vary between, you know, wistfulness anger, rage, uh, you know, and then there, there is some, I mean, charm, you know, you're going to make me lonesome when you go to me is one of like the most charming breakup song, free breakup (laughs) song ever recorded. I mean, you just can't believe it. And then, you know, the album ends on kind of a wistful, but slightly upbeat note, this kind of case or or sort of feel to it. Now that is not so much the case for simple twist of fate, which (laughs) to me is one of the saddest songs in Dylan's entire songbook. Uh, sonically, I mean, what do you, I, mean, I can only imagine when he was putting this album together from the things I've read that, uh, the sequencing of this album was relatively uncontroversial is that as he was recording the songs, uh, there seemed to be a general, uh, Bob produced it himself pretty much. There seemed to be a, a, a basic understanding of this is how the songs are going to go. There was not a lot of futzing of, Oh, maybe we could put this here, move this song here. It, everyone pretty much agreed, but we're going to do here, 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 here. 
I can only imagine what song you, after recording Tangled Up in Blue, now, of course, we know the version that's on the record was recorded very late in the process. That's when he went back over to, to uh, Minnesota and re-recorded a lot of the songs. But I have to wonder, like, when you have that extraordinary of a performance, one of the greatest performances, I think, in his, uh, in his studio career, how do you follow that? I mean, what do you, <laughs> you know, like, what do you do? And then I guess the best, in his mind, the best way is to completely change gears and all of a sudden slow it down and drag us all into this incredibly sad world of Simple Twisted Fate. I mean, the musicianship, just that those initial strums of the guitar immediately put you in, you realize you were in a totally different world from the one of Tangled Up in Blue. Yeah, exactly. And for, for most of the album, maybe for all of the album, it, the guitar is tuned to an open D. So um, that's really common with like bottleneck playing or playing with a slide. And it makes the guitar sound really resonant and vibrant. And throughout the song, um, Simple Twist of Fate, it's strummed in like a shuffle pattern. So it really creates that like sauntering, walking down a road kind of feeling. And I I think that that's the perfect follow-up to Tangled Up in Blue if you're headed back on the road, you know. Where else <laughs> would you go then to a seaside town or a riverside town <laughs> open okay explain i am horrible at musicianship i know nothing about it. can you explain the open d a little bit i've heard that mentioned about that that bob would a lot of the record was done in that and it threw a lot of people off can you get into that a little bit more about what exactly that means oh yeah you um you kind of you're, you're dropping the sound of the guitar so the 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 strings aren't wound so tight so it gets looser a bit more jangly um it's really that that kind of tuning is associated with Joni Mitchell's sound because she uses lots of slide guitar. Um, it's just very folksy sounding and uh, open. Okay, all right, all right. So that so you don't you maybe for this song, considering how sort of slow and methodical it is, you don't want that kind of tight sound. You want something a little again to like we're looser, just something a little more. Right. It's got a does it have like a slight almost like vibration to it because it's it, there's just more mm-hmm. movement of the string. Is that how it works? Yeah, it just it sounds so completely open. Like if you strum the guitar, it'll just ring forever kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Thank you. I said I'm so bad at I have a Bob Dylan podcast and I don't understand music, which just seems <laughs> absurd. But <laughs> that's where we are. So uh, again, I quoted the opening verse and this, the song continues. As the evening sky grew dark, she looked at him and he felt the spark tingle to his bones. It was that he'd felt alone and wished that he'd gone straight and watched out for a simple twist of fate. Now, right at the beginning, one of the things I find so intriguing about the songwriting of this song is the rhyme scheme, is that mm-hmm. the lines, of course, they end, you know, fate, every line has to end with fate, so the previous line has to rhyme, but then he's got these internal rhymes going mm-hmm. on, where, again, in the second line, you know, she, look, she looked at him and he felt a spark. He's rhyming dark with spark, even though spark is in the middle of the line, tingle to his bones, Twas then he felt alone. And so we've got another rhyme. So in just in one verse, we've got, what, three or four different rhymes, which I, I wish I could speak to, and maybe you can, what, what the feeling of that is. Like, what's the purpose of that, of having so many internal rhymes going on in any given verse? I guess it, it creates, um, like, a constant flow, but also a bit of tension, because there's, like, two different rhyming patterns that kind of are tossed around. So... The, the half rhymes and then the full rhymes, there's there's an interesting tension created between them. But at the same time, it pushes you along through the song. 
because you're yeah. expecting another one and then another one immediately following it. Yeah, it's like you're you're just catching up to the last rhyme before mm-hmm. he's moved on to the next one. You know, right. you're like, wait a minute, he's already. And again, the way he sings it, and this is something where I have said multiple times across this, this show, I don't know how anyone writes a song. I just don't know how you do it. To me, it seems like magic to me, how you know where to place your emphasis. And of course, in these in this song, he's stretching out the last word of every penultimate line. Uh, the the you know when he says we'd wish that he'd gone straight, he sings straight with like six syllables. He's like mm-hmm. straight, you know, and he does that for every line. And it's like I don't know how a singer knows how to do that. Like how he knows the timing. I guess is that he's doing it to matching the timing he hears in the tune. But it gives this, I find at least, it gives this. Uh, I mean, obviously the whole song is melancholy, obviously from the mm-hmm. from the sound of it. But there's the kind of like it's almost like the guy is wailing a little, but he's not wailing in an idiot wind where he's yelling, but it's this, this kind of almost desolate, like straight, like it's like, he's losing his energy a little bit. I don't know. Am I, am I crazy? No, I, I think that that phrasing is beautiful. Um, the, the last couplet of each verse is very iambic. So that's where there's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed one. So it creates the sound of a heartbeat, the ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. So I think the fact that he follows a couple iams with like this long, like expressive thing is just, it's beautiful and it's heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah, there's just such a, it's such a sadness to it that without, I mean, again, the lines itself are already sad, but then the performance has just it's so drenched in, sadness and <laughs> the song continues he says they walked along by the old canal a little confused i remember well and stopped into a strange hotel with a neon burning bright he felt the heat of the night hit him like a freight train moving with a simple twist of fate so third verse uh the the thing about this song and dylan has said this in many interviews that uh, he was influenced by the painter norman rabin who he said taught him how to look at a painting mm-hmm. where you're seeing bits and pieces of it by itself and then you're seeing the whole thing as a as a grand mosaic and he took that approach to blood on the tracks for the songwriting and for the longest time for i don't know how many years i heard this song i always felt like i you know okay it's a story song the narrator is separate from the story he's telling until the very end but Mm -hmm. then i i realized that no he drops in an i right here in the third verse and for some reason I don't know how many times I've listened to this song. I always seem to miss that, that he's, he's revealing that the narrator is the person in the song, or at the very least is part of the story. He's not just telling the story. He's part of it because a little confused. I remember well, and you're like, well, wait a minute. How can he be? I mean, I guess he could know that the people are confused, but no, then this is this per this is happening to this person. And then he's stepping back and telling it like it's a story. And there's something about the, again, the vocal performance where, that I remember well seems almost, it so seems easy to miss. I don't, again, it's like, it's something that I don't really notice every time. They're like, no, no, he's tipping off that it isn't just a story. He's participating in this as well. And it's amazing. And then we get to that line again. I love the phrasing of freight train where the freight is nine syllables mm-hmm. and freight train moving. Like he smashes those two lines together and they moves on to simple, simple twist of fate. Again, it's the, the verbal dexterity he is showing on the song is just remarkable. You you mentioned what, what or I mentioned what I disagreed with your your yes, previous yes. Uh, person was that 
he said that there wasn't lots of uh, symbolism or metaphor used, and I, I think that it's riddled with <laughs> um, symbolism and metaphor, like the, the mention of the, the old canal and the freight train, I think, create a sense of like false freedom because um, the canal particularly is interesting because in literature, water is typically a place of rebirth, renewal, um, rivers are representative of freedom. But with the canal, that's that's man controlling the path of water. It's a man-made infrastructure. So there's mm. an artificial sense of freedom. And just like the freight train, you know, it's moving very quickly with this simple twist of fate, but it's got a fixed destination. So it's like, he's free to do anything. He's single, whatever. But at the same time, he's always going to be stuck in this cycle of uh, momentary happiness with heartbreak, you know? Wow. Okay. I, I've never really considered that. That's uh, that's fascinating. I mean, I didn't, I don't think I ever knew that about canals anyway. I mean, I guess like, you know, the Panama canal. Okay. That's what I never really would have occurred to me before, but, and boy, you know, Bob loves his train metaphors. That man loves his train metaphors. I really do think in a previous life, he was one of those uh, boxcar Willie kind of guys that, you know, <laughs> rode the rails and just sang songs for people and, and sang for his supper. I really think he probably, <laughs> at some level would have liked that life he seems to really mm-hmm. romanticize the notion of trains so then in the next verse he says it goes on a saxophone someplace far off played as she was walking along by the arcade as the light bust through a beat-up shade where he was waking up she dropped a coin into the cup of a blind man at the gate and forgot about a simple twist of fate i mean this verse this is like this is what like every film noir uh film aspires to in terms of atmosphere uh i mean a saxophone playing somewhere far off so someone is in someone is playing music far away but i'm not near that i can hear it but i'm not part of it there's an arcade you know which gives it again kind of like a seaside town sort of feel Mm -hmm. to it the light bus through a beat-up shade i mean good lord that's that's every pi in a film noir is in some cruddy office where the light is going through the shade and the shade's kind of crappy and beat up. I mean, that is again, like in another life, I think Bob Dylan wrote, you know, mystery novels. Yeah. <laughs> That's another version of, of his life. And mm-hmm. then the woman drops a coin into the cup of a blind man at the gate. So you've got some poor beggar sitting there with the gate and she drops a coin and a, a slight gesture of generosity uh, as she's heading out and forgot about, a simple twist. Of fate. Who do you think is forgetting about the simple twist of fate? Is the she? Is the guy? Who is who is talking in that line there? You know, I, I have I have a very um, English literature tradition mind where I read far too much into lines that <laughs> don't belong there. But um, I I have this theory that the the blind man is actually the the I and the I remember well because. Um, mm. In in Greek mythology, you know, Ty- Tiresias was this oracle figure who, um, he was blind, but therefore he could see all, right? He saw time as a nonlinear thing. He could see everything. And so I, I, I want to believe in my English literature mind that he is the storyteller. <laughs> he is the omniscient guy singing this. But um, Wow. Yeah. And in that line, um, I think it's it's the, the blind man that, forgot about the simple twist of fate because now he's the storyteller whoa okay <laughs> i would not have thought to bring greek mythology into this yeah. but as we know with 
anyway, as we as we said, there is no right answer. There is no wrong answer. Right. And with Bob Dylan, it's certainly possible. I mean, it's really possible what he's thinking about that. That's I never I, I've I've lived with this album for I don't know thirty years. I've never considered that. I've never thought about that. And now I won't be able to get it out of my head. So oh. thank you for that. I appreciate it. So <laughs> uh, he woke up. The room was bare. He didn't see her anywhere. He told himself he didn't care. Pushed the window open wide, felt an emptiness inside to which he just could not relate, brought on by a simple twist of fate. Again, there's so much meaning going on here. Mm -hmm. Uh, The woman has gotten up and left him. Uh, He didn't see her anywhere. He told himself he didn't care, which I feel like that is, I mean, that's this album writ large. Is a guy trying to convince himself and trying to convince others, I don't even (laughs) care. You know, if you see her, say hello, that's fine. Uh, you know, you're going to make that's it, it's there's so many levels to it of like, this is a guy trying to convince himself of this, but he knows that it's bull. He knows it's nonsense, but he can't mm-hmm. help it telling himself anyway. And he's trying to tell other people, even though he knows people aren't buying it either. And yeah. I love the way Dylan just says he tells him he told himself he didn't care. He, the, again, this sort of wistful, wistful uh, line reading. Uh, again, it's just amazingly powerful. I, I agree. And there, there's weird wording that somehow just, just works, you know, that the line felt an emptiness inside to which he just could not relate. Well, if you're feeling something, you're already relating to it. Mm-hmm. So it, it shows, like, like you said, that he's trying to detach very hard from something that he is super glued to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the, the goes on and says, he hears the ticking of the clocks and walks along with a parrot that talks. Again, what a great detail of there's a parrot that's mm-hmm. out on the boardwalk somewhere sort of saying uh, probably nonsense words. And, uh, you know, and you'd be, that's probably the last thing you're interested in at that moment. Hunts her down by the waterfront docks where the sailors all come in. Maybe she'll pick him out again. How long must he wait once more time, once more for a simple twist of fate? Now, in this penultimate verse here, uh, he's casting this person as uh, a prostitute in some level. I mean, she's, mm-hmm. she's hanging out at the docks waiting for the sailors. Um, I never took it as literal that that's who this person is in this mm-hmm. story. He's kind of insulting her a little. He's trying to, again, he's trying to distance himself and he's sort of casting her in this role of like, well, she's just, you know, I, I, whatever. She's, she's just, she's just this, sort of floozy who's picking up men and I was one of them and maybe she'll pick me out again. But I don't, the, the, the reading of the song suggests a lot more emotion going on than what that verse seems to mm-hmm. be saying. And again, you've got this tension of the tone of the song doesn't match what the words are. And you have to kind of figure that out. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting in the, um, the bootleg series, uh, take three a, I think it is. He says, or he sings, maybe he'll spot her once again. So, I kind of like that he changed it to maybe she'll pick him out again because the two lines talking about hunting her down and then finding her, that it's a bit creepy. Uh, no, mm-hmm. no woman wants to be hunted. And I right. think right. <laughs> singing that maybe she'll pick him out again, gives her more like autonomy and shows that he's in less control of this situation. Yeah. That's a, you mentioned the, the other versions. And of course uh, this song uh, was not one of the ones that Bob uh, re-recorded when he went to Minnesota. This is the versions of pretty much all the versions we know of the song, I believe are the ones in New York, but there are multiple versions on the more blood, more tracks bootleg series, as you just mentioned. And this is one of those things where 
we all know in the history of Bob Dylan, he ha- often uh, doesn't choose the best take for the album. He leaves great ones behind. And there are some choices. There are a lot of people uh, who prefer the New York versions of a lot of the butt on the track songs. Apparently when he played these songs for Roger McGuinn and Joni, Joni Mitchell and David Crosby, apparently some of them told him that he, they preferred the New York versions to the, the Minnesota ones, but simple mm-hmm. twist of fate seems to be one of the songs that uh, stayed in New York, as it were, like he realized that was the, you know, he didn't want to redo it. And I like, I like the alternates that you hear on more blood, more tracks, but ultimately I feel as though the one that made the record is the superior one. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. It, it sounds so perfect on the album. It fits so well. Yeah. He's, he's, he's working out the words and he's working out the tune and he hasn't, I don't think he's quite gotten how he wants to sing it. And then I think he nailed it with the, the version. So I think mm-hmm. in this case, they picked the right one. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's, it's, you know, I, Bob Dylan gets a lot of, I don't know, maybe I should say grief, but there are a lot of writers that write about him that talk about how undisciplined he is and that, uh, <laughs> you know, he's not someone like the, like you talk about the Beatles, you know, where the Beatles spent, what, like four months making Sergeant Peppers or something? I mean, they, they, you know, worked on it forever. And Dylan has not done anything like that. At the same time, when you hear all the versions of all the different approaches on the Blood on the Truck songs, this is clearly not a guy that was just sort of banging these out. He was working long and hard to get these exactly right. I agree. They they sound very thought through. Um, yeah, just perfect takes all the way around. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, this is, he really... Uh, for how much different they sound. Uh, it's amazing that you can, I, I mean, I feel like that's why I can never be a musician aside from having no talent for it, but like just the, the infinite choices that lay out before you of how to do any given song. I feel like that would, um, it would freeze me in my, no pun intended, freeze me in my tracks. You know, I would just be like, I don't even know how to start. How, what, what's the best way to do this song? And then you maybe nail it down. And then you're like, well, now I have that many choices for this next song. Mm-hmm. And I got 10 songs to do. I just be, it would just be too many choices. I wouldn't know what to do. It'd be like, you know, you're scanning through Netflix and you just click around tiles for an hour because you just can't decide what right. it is to do. You know, you're just like, okay, I've, oh, I've just wasted an hour looking at tiles. Great. Um, yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> so then the, uh, the song wraps up with people tell me it's a sin. And now we're back to the first person. Tell me it's a mm-hmm. sin to know and feel too much within. I still believe she was my twin. But I lost the ring. She was born in spring, but I was born too late. Blame it on a simple twist of fate. And as much as I love all the verses in the song, this is the one. This is the <laughs> the wrap up is the one to me that kicks you in the stomach emotionally because we uh, mean people tell me it's a sin to know and feel too much within. What kind of what kind of person would tell you that? Uh, that's kind of a terrible thing. I still believe she was my twin but I lost the ring. I mean, that line is, I mean, does he, this, this seems like someone who he's just met and he believes she was his twin, but I lost the ring. But of course now when you're bringing, you're bringing in rings, that sounds like a marriage, uh, right. which of course is kind of, we know what he supposedly is talking about. She was born in spring, but I was born too late. Blame it on a simple twist of fate. That next, that, that, that last, uh, again, I keep saying penultimate, that penultimate line. She was born in spring, but I was born too late. How does, how does that read to you? What do you feel that, that means to, to you? Yeah, I, I feel like it's a older woman. And uh, especially like around that time, lots of male artists were actually like settling down with older women. Linda McCartney was older than Paul McCartney. Yoko Ono was significantly older than 
John Lennon and like, I'm sure they got the sense that there's something you can learn from women that are older than you, but you know, the woman in this song is the realist. She's, she's called the relationship for what it was and she, she moved on and he's the one left romanticizing what the relationship could have been, you know? Mm. I, I will admit uh, that, that, that uh, you know, I, yeah, I'm guilty of that. Uh, I mean, I, this is, I've, again, I've said this on other episodes about Blood on the Tracks is that, you know, I know intellectually uh, that Bob Dylan, of course, did not write this album for me because <laughs> I, was, I was four years old in 1975. Right. Um, but this, this album, when I finally got to it, cut so deeply into my psyche that it, you it takes a little bit of mental gymnastics to remember that he is not in fact writing it for me. And um, I, at, at the time that I was really discovering Bob uh, wholeheartedly uh, or a little bit after that, I was uh, in a relationship with someone who was older than me mm-hmm. and it was not working out uh, the way, <laughs> the way that it was not working out in the way that the narrator is bemoaning in this song in that they were putting, I was putting a little too much into something that probably really couldn't carry the load. And that line, she was born in spring, but I was born too late. I, I told myself that a lot. That if I was maybe a little older, maybe mm-hmm. this would work better. And I look back on the now and I say, I was kidding myself. But at the time, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And so that line is just like, wow, Bob, you, how do you know my life, buddy? How did you, how did you do that? I mean, it's just kind of amazing. And then the way he sings that final line, blame it on, a simple twist of fate again, and he extends out the fate and it's just the person, the singer sounds exhausted, just completely desolate. And it's such gorgeous misery. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it, it, I don't know the alchemy involved that you can make a sad song, not just sound depressing where you're like, I don't want to hear that, but Mm -hmm. he makes it, you, you, again, you lean in, to this guy's pain and you feel like you can relate to it. And he just draws you into this wonderful little watercolor painting, sad watercolor painting Mm -hmm. following the exuberance of blood on the tracks. And you're like, it is such a great one, two punch that he follows that song with this song, which is just as good, but in a completely different way. It is just, it's Mm -hmm. unreal. Yeah, I I agree. And you know, that, that final line, it, it really hits that, you know, it's it's really nice to blame things on fate rather than yep. your own decisions. Um, you know, I, I don't know how well it would stand up if you were breaking up with somebody saying, oh, it, it's just fate. It's not anything we did. It's just fate. So I, I don't know. It seems it's a, it's a very interesting song and it has that, that ambiance of a drizzly cold day. And I, I don't know how he did it, but <laughs> it's really good. I, I hate to ask this question because it, uh, I feel kind of dumb asking it, but maybe you would know this. Is, is, is Simple Twist of Fate a phrase in the culture before Bob Dylan, or did he create that phrase? Was that something that he was borrowing? Because I can't think I've ever heard of it outside of the song, but I, I could be wrong. It, it sounds ancient, doesn't it? Yeah, it <laughs> yes, it sounds, yeah. Philosophical like, lines. Yeah, I'm like he had because I remember thinking that um, there was a movie uh, in the 90s, I think, with a Steve Martin called Simple Mm -hmm. Twist of Fate. And I remember thinking, did they crib that from the Dylan song or did Bob borrow that from an ancient book or something? 
Uh, I've never seen any reference to it, but, uh, you know, you never know with him. He probably read something, some ancient hymnal somewhere, and there it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, it does sound ancient. It does sound like a phrase that existed in the culture long before Bob Dylan got to it. But he's good at that. Uh, yeah. he's, he's good at doing things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you know, Bob never wanted to leave anything alone, uh, even when he's got something perfect. Uh, just a year later... He did a live performance. Uh, it was a tribute to his old friend, John Hammond, the producer. And he sang a bunch of songs. He sang Hurricane um, and he sang Oh Sister. So this would have been, I guess, 1976 after Desire came out. But he sings Simple Twist of Fate. And um, amazingly, he rewrites the last verse. And uh, he changes the last verse from, from what we just talked about to People Tell Me It's a Crime to feel too much at any one time. She should have caught me in my prime. She would have stayed with me instead, instead of going off to sea and leaving me to meditate upon that simple twist of fate. And I can, I can remember, um, get it, I don't remember where I first saw that clip, uh, probably off a bootleg or something. And I did not know that he rewrote the last verse. So I'm, you know, I'm listening to the song and, and you hear, I think it's Scarlett Rivera is playing her violin. And I'm like, oh, this is a very pretty version. And then all of a sudden, bang, we've got this whole nother <laughs> alternate verse. And it blew my mind open because I was like, wow, he managed to, I don't want to say he improved the song, but he managed to come up with another verse that to me is equally as good yeah. as the Blood on the Tracks version, which I did not think was possible. Are you familiar with that version that I'm talking about? I, I have heard it, yes. What do you think of it? I, I like the, the song as it is on the, the studio album, but the that verse does give it an extra layer. Um, it makes it more interesting. And of course, it changes the meaning, just like he does with every song. Um, it's, yeah, th- wh- why would it be a crime to, to feel so much at any one time other than like sleeping around? Um, mm-hmm. And then that would be his fault, not fate's fault. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it changes the song a lot. But, yeah. um, I do like that version, but I prefer the studio version. I love the, again, the, the internal, the, the, he hits hard on the rhymes. Mm-hmm. She should have caught me in my prime. She would have stayed with me instead of going off to sea and mm-hmm. leaving me to meditate. And again, I love the way he hits on it and leaving me. He like mm-hmm. spits it out to meditate upon that simple twist of fate. And of course, by altering the final verse, in my mind, he then very makes the song very specific about a piece of his history that we all know about, is that Suze Rotolo went off to Italy sure. uh, when they were, when they were, their relationship was faltering, and she went off to Italy, and he wrote a bunch of songs about that, the Boots of Spanish Leather and One Too Many Mornings and things like that. But all of a sudden, when he mentions going off to sea, I start saying, oh, wait a minute, is this song about Mm-hmm. Suze Rotolo? Is that what he's talking about? And then I then I've seen interviews with him where he talked about that the idea that a the at least for 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 Bob Dylan or for the the singer that there is no one person that he's singing about. It is a string of people who yeah. may, in fact, in the grand scheme of um, the universe, be all one person anyway. They may be one spirit entering mm-hmm. different people throughout your life. Now, of course. Mm-hmm the women he's talking about are all existing at the same time. So we're not talking about reincarnation exactly because Suze Rotolo Mm -hmm. and Sarah Dillon existed at the same time. Uh, In fact, they they still did for decades. Um, Mm -hmm. So that doesn't exactly work, but 
I thought it was very interesting that he made it so specific to an event that he figures a lot of people have to know about his history. And it makes it like, okay, well now all the women that the singer's talking about in this album, he's not talking about one person. He's talking about multiple people throughout his life. I just thought that was a very interesting approach, especially on a kind of one-off live performance, uh, not on a record or anything like that. It's a it's a beautiful songwriting tactic, and I, I think a lot of artists pull from that idea to kind of draw upon all of your life stories, not just one specific one, and therefore you you open it up to different interpretation if it's about multiple people rather than just one. Um, so I, I think that that's pretty. And then the you know of course um, being left to meditate on the simple twist of fate results in the the entire song, the, right. the whole song of the meditation <laughs> on the simple twist of fate. So. It's a nice summary there at the end. Yeah. I mean, it said it's, it's, it was never, the guy never stopped messing with the songs. And I thought it was interesting. Um, it appears, a live version appears on the At Budokan record from mm-hmm. 1978. And he introduces the song as a simple love story that happened to me, mm-hmm. which, wow, that's very direct. And mm-hmm. then the, the, the version, the, the final verse that he sings on Budokan is the one from the John Hammond version. Uh, so obviously he enjoyed, enjoyed the right term, thought that was the, the version he wanted to sing for a while. And then later on, when he's gone and sang it in concert, it's gone back to this version. But mm-hmm. so for a little while, at least he liked that final version. He liked that final verse more than the, the song version. But it's, again, it's remarkable. And I remember this got pointed out uh, by my guest Henry Bernstein when we did the Sh- Shelter from the Storm episode mm-hmm. is that Bob never really took the blood on the track songs out on tour in their original forms. By the time he ended up going back on tour, it was with the Rolling Thunder review. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden those songs got completely redone in different ways. So, I mean, these songs never really, for the most part, got an outing live the way you would hear them on the record. I mean, Simple Twist of Fate only sounds like the way it does on the record on the record. He's never right. tried to replicate this sound live. Mm-hmm. which I imagine is probably very difficult because of, you know, he's, he's, it, it, I would, it would be interesting to hear this version, the album version live of how they would try and replicate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also find that, you know, the Budokan version, it is kind of a very generic, like his vocal isn't super committed to it. And there's right. like a saxophone in there, mm-hmm. even though the song mentions the saxophone, yeah. When I hear the saxophone come in on the Budokan version, I'm like, what's that doing there? Like, it just doesn't <laughs> sound right at all. Mm-hmm. But it's a song that he, you know, he tried to play. He's played it 804 times mm-hmm. between 1975 and 2019. And in fact, he played it on November 2nd, 2019, which is one of the last concerts he's done uh, since before COVID. So, I mean, he's still trying it out. It's kind of remarkable. Yeah, I mean that—that's kind of the artist's way to to constantly remake and try to make better. Um, who knows if he'll succeed? Maybe he'll do another version. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Add another keep, verse. And keep going. Yeah, I'll keep keep messing with it. And keep. I mean, as he said, <laughs> the the version on the record exists forever. It's never mm-hmm. going away. So why not play with it? Why not keep right. tweaking it? Uh, because it doesn't harm the version that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's a song that uh, I find just keeps get paying rewards off the more you listen to it. It doesn't, to mm-hmm. me, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't age badly. It, you still, you still can tap into that deep, deep sadness 
that's going on. And there's, I remember many years ago, I can't remember where I read this, but I, I saw someone give a review of the song where they said, this song is about an emptiness and a loneliness so profound that even human connection won't cure it. And I always found that to be a very powerful way of looking at the song is that there's something deep inside this person that is so desperate for connection that even connecting doesn't really cure it. And I thought that sounds like almost like a living hell for this person to go through. And again, to make that the second song on the record, to trust your audience Mm -hmm. that they're going to stick with this uh, and go through this tour of, of sadness is uh, just remarkable. And it's just, it's a reason why this album remains the masterpiece that it is, is because he put this kind of thought and attention into every song. And it's, it's, it's not a song that I, I think it's been covered a little bit here and there, but it's, it's, it's not tangled up in blue and it doesn't have that exuberance to it that could be fun to play. It is just so profoundly sad. And yet I've listened to it a million times. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, I was actually very surprised to hear this song in, in a movie called The Age of Adeline. Have you seen that? No, I didn't. No, I'm familiar with the movie, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, so it's it's about this woman who, through a series of unexplainable events, stops aging. And um, this song plays through a montage of her falling in love with someone and mm. all the while knowing that they'll never have a chance to have a future together because she can't age. So I, I thought that that was a very good use of this song because it was just so bittersweet and romantic and melancholic. It was, I thought it was a very good use of the song. Um, but yeah, it, it really is one of those that you can, it, there's such a sense of catharsis for him, but as like the listener as well, whoever has just gone through a breakup, like, Really, you can sulk to the song really well. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, that sounds interesting. I, I can't think of any other time I've ever seen this song in a movie. I always, when I see Bob Dylan songs show up in movies, I always kind of, I, I always have a slight uh, producer brain part of me mm-hmm. as well. And I always think, okay, if you're going to spend the money for a Bob Dylan song, and I'm guessing <laughs> some, some Bob Dylan songs are more expensive than others. If you're going to mm-hmm. spend the money on a Bob Dylan song, you better really feel like you need it it better it, you know it better be the kind of thing where like no other song is going to fit than mm-hmm. that so i have to use this and so when i've seen bob dylan songs used in movies for like 10 seconds i always go really that was that you really mm-hmm. needed that and in other moments where i say oh no that's the perfect thing i can see why you would do it so i'm i i'm i'm not familiar with that movie i heard about it I mean, harrison ford is in it right it's um correct yeah <laughs> what's the who's the main actress in it i forget um, her name the gossip like, girl Lake Lively, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting. It's that's it. You know, knowing what we know about the song and the idea that the 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 protagonist is seeing people throughout his life as a different person, but maybe all the same person. Mm-hmm. That resonates a little with someone who doesn't age. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting idea. So, but I have to I, now. I kind of want to see the movie just for that scene to see mm-hmm. how effectively they use it because I've seen other movies that use Bob Dylan songs not that great, and I go. Ah, that seems like kind of a waste. You know, he made all the effort to get a Bob Dylan song in there, but that's intriguing. So yeah, it's it's just it's just such an amazing song. It it's it holds up with all the other songs. And again, I would not want to follow Tangled Up in Blue for any reason. It just seems like you're doomed to fail, and yet he found a way to do it. So this is just just a remarkable, remarkable song. So what did you when you were doing all this research for this song? I mean, what did you did you come away with some sort of new appreciation for it, or did you learn something about the making of it that you were surprised at? Um, not really. That you know, other than finding a bunch of different like live uh 
lyrics, like the, the way he's changed it throughout his live shows, there, there's not really, I was really trying to find something of him talking about it. And, you know, that, that, <laughs> Good luck with that. That would be like finding a treasure chest or something. But mm-hmm. um, he, he's so enigmatic with the way he answers questions saying, oh, no, uh, these songs were inspired by Chekhov's short stories and things like that. <laughs> completely threw me off and I decided to try to tackle all of Chekhov's short stories and that was a rabbit chase uh so could not get through it um yeah no I I didn't really find anything to be honest other than um what we already kind of talked about what do you think I I hate to ask you what you think Bob Dylan is meaning by this because who the hell knows but what do you think about the idea that uh, an artist would almost purposely throw people off the trail i mean do you think by saying it's about Chekhov, it's it's based on a bunch of Chekhov short stories that sounds like it could be because bob reads a lot but at the same time that does sound like it's a dodge <laughs> uh like why you know what would be the purpose of that why throw people off is just just to be a trickster he, you know he has been known uh but also maybe just he doesn't want to reveal his hand quite so obviously could that idea that maybe that's what it is i like to think that he's promoting reading to young people to go visit libraries and things like that but um no i think he was completely trying to throw off the interviewer okay all right bob dylan would be the best advertising for for reading imaginable because (laughs) i mean the guy i have said again i've said in other episodes he could do a book club i know a lot of celebrities have book clubs i think like oprah of course has hers and reese witherspoon i think bob dylan could have an amazing book club if he wanted to because the guy Mm -hmm. is so well read and reads all sorts of strange things that people have never heard of and man i mean he could really you know give a nice boost for the for the book in industry if he wanted to do that that would be something and you know like he's big on demanding lately yeah yeah that would be really cool so well again that is that's simple twist of fate i mean i, I it almost seems a little absurd to talk about how great this song is because everybody knows but man this as i said at the top of the show this was a song that i didn't feel like i quite got it the way I wanted to. I, you know, I, I try and, you know, we make every episode on every song the best we can about getting to the core of it of what's so great about it, or maybe in some cases not so great, but this was one that I'd always bugged me. of like, I love to redo it sometimes. So it really did work out that you wanted to research the way you did and it all worked out great. Cause I really enjoyed having you on the show. So thank you so much for doing this, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at hstephanie9. All right, perfect. Again, thanks you. Thanks so much for coming by. Of course, uh, if you want to follow the show, go to our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We're always talking Bob over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. And then finally, if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, of which Pod Dylan is a part, Please go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Henry Bernstein, Max Hutzel, and Sebastian Krug for their support of Pod Dylan. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye-bye. They sat together in the park As the evening sky grew dark she looked at him and he felt a spark tingle to his bones. Twas then he felt alone and wished that he'd gone straight and watched out for a simple twist of fate. 
People tell me it's a crime To feel too much at any one time She should have caught me in my prime She would have stayed with me Instead of going off to sea And leaving me to meditate Upon that simple twist of fate 